How y'all doing? It's really good to be able to be together again this morning. It's been a great morning already so far, and I love when we have people who follow the Lord and baptism, and before the day's over, at the end of the service, actually, we're going to have the opportunity to present some people who have joined our church and membership. So it's, a, it's really a great day, and you know, I don't want to spoil it for y'all or nothing, but um, we are going to talk today about a subject that maybe isn't our favorite subject, but I think that the things that we'll learn are really going to be a help to you. And what we're talking about is dealing with personal tragedy. We, throughout last year, were studying chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John, and we're picking that back up again today, and we're going to be in chapter number 11. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to get ready in John chapter 11. And uh, we're going to look at a story that for many of you is very familiar. It's the story of a man who was a close personal friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name was Lazarus, who died. Ultimately, the story goes on to, that Jesus raises him from the dead. Actually, we're not going to get that far in the story today. We're just going to kind of talk about the beginning parts because there's some amazing things to be learned in this story. Listen, one thing that you realize as you live a few years in this life is that this life guarantees nothing to any of us except hospital beds and cemeteries. And that's kind of a bummer. It's kind of a bad thought. But the idea is this, is that, you know what? Um, None of us love to go to the hospital. None of us love, certainly, to go to funerals. Um, But it's a reality. It's an absolute reality of life. Our life is on a cycle that ultimately one day ends. And what we're going to see in John chapter 11 is the story of a man. Like I said, he is He's beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, and and that's an important thing. And as we look at this story, I want to, listen, know this. I want to be very sensitive to all of you who maybe at this current time or very recently have experienced some personal loss. Uh, If it hasn't happened to you recently, uh, eventually it will because this is, like I said, the cycle of life. But I, I really think that the things that we can see in the first 22 verses of John chapter 11 are really gonna help you. I mean, even you young people, I know that you're young and, and you think that, you know, you're going to live forever and all that kind of thing, but, but there's bad things that happen to good people. Uh, by the way, there's bad things that happen to bad people and good things that happen to good people and good things that happen to bad people. The point is, is at the end of the day, we're going to learn how we're supposed to respond and what the Lord expects from us as we go through these kind of things. And so um, it's going to be very practical today. If you're new to First Baptist Church, uh, I hope you'll really get something from this. It should be very practical if you come all the time. Again, God's Word is going to speak to us once again. The, the, the way we're going to kind of attack it is first we're just going to kind of get a handle on the truth of life and death especially in the lives of Christian people. And uh, then we're going to talk about some key lessons and how that translates into some specific challenges for our lives and our ministries today. So before we jump into it, we'll just jump right in. Let's go ahead and pray and just ask the Lord to be our guide. Let's pray. First and foremost, Lord, when we look at a subject like this and we look at the passing of a physical life, our hearts immediately go to those who maybe we know um, who have recently experienced things like that. And I just pray, God, first and foremost, that you would comfort the hearts of anybody who's here today, who's listening, that has been going through this. Their hearts are heavy, they're mourning, they're sorrowful, they're sad, they're sorry, they they miss their loved one who's not with them anymore, or maybe somebody's suffering in a way where they have a loved one who's 
really not doing well and the future doesn't look very good. And God, just, just give them strength. Give them comfort. Give them encouragement. I, I pray that you would do that through your word today. And, and secondly, Lord, I, I pray for the rest of us and all of us, actually, that, that you would just teach us. You would teach us the things we need to know, that you would give us the spiritual eyes, that you would allow us to see the principles that you desire to communicate when you inspired John to write this gospel, when you inspired him to write the very words of this real-life historical account, that you put down on purpose the words you wanted so that we today in 2013 could learn the things we need to learn. And God, I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would give us insight. I pray that you would give us strength and that we would be able to walk away from here with a strength that is supernatural, that is beyond our ability to comprehend or understand or manifest on our own. So Lord, we leave these things before you. We anticipate great things and we thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the first point that we're going to look at in your notes, it's, it's going to be kind of a good news, bad news thing. And so let's just jump into John chapter 11, and we're going to start with the first five verses. Please follow along. It says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, this story of Mary wiping the feet of Jesus and anointing him with oil actually occurs in John chapter 12. And so if you keep coming back, we'll eventually get to that story. It just proves that the gospel of John is not written chronologically, okay? But eventually we'll get to that story in John chapter 12. Uh, It's an awesome story, by the way. But that's the Mary he's talking about. Verse number three, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick, When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Let's stop there for a second. It says that Jesus loved, and we're going to focus on Lazarus. He certainly loved the sisters as well. Now, if you've been in church any time, and even if you haven't been in church very much, you probably came here already understanding, hey, I thought Jesus loved everybody. And he does. There's no doubt about it. But in this case, we're talking about the man, Jesus Christ. Yes, he's the God-man, but the man, Jesus Christ, who had a personal relationship with the members of this family. And so it was a very special love. It really emphasizes that idea of having a personal relationship with him. And that's really an important thing because when we talk about the issue of true biblical salvation— Uh, sometimes people get confused about exactly what biblical salvation is. And and let me just start by saying true biblical salvation, the thing that provides you the guarantee of eternal life after this physical life is over, is not religion. It's not showing up in church, although that's a fine thing to do. It's not putting money in a plate, although that's a fine thing to do. It's not getting baptized in water, although that's a good thing to do. There's a lot of good things we can do. It's not just being a good neighbor and having your good works outweigh your bad works. True biblical salvation is having a personal relationship with a risen, living Savior. You understand what he did for you. He died on the cross for your sins. He offers you the gift of eternal life. You receive that personally into your heart and your life. But it is not a once-and-done prayer. I did that. I checked it off my list. I got my fire insurance in my wallet. I'm good to go. I'm not on my way to hell. I'm on my way to heaven, and I'm done. Good luck. I'll figure out the rest of my life on my own. And people sometimes think that, and that's a mistake. 
Because true biblical salvation is characterized when a person enters, yes, it begins at a moment with a prayer of repentance, but it continues on through our whole lives as we develop this personal living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are here today and you are truly born again, you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This should, this should be a part of your everyday experience, not just once a week. And if you don't really know what we're talking about, then maybe that's something that still can be yet in your future. In fact, today can be the day that you can enter into that relationship. But true biblical salvation is that. I say that to say that this story of Lazarus is going to apply to each and every one of us because we too have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, something else you need to know is that Jesus considers such people his personal friends. And in fact, if you'll just glance with me at John chapter 15, you can flip over a couple of pages. In John chapter 15, starting in verse number 13, the Lord Jesus says this, he says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. And you know, isn't that the case? When you're personal friends with somebody, you share stuff with them, don't you? You tell them certain personal things that maybe you don't tell just passers-by. And they tell you personal things that they wouldn't tell just anybody else. You share a level of, rea- of interaction that you don't share with just everybody else. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, I'm, I'm sharing with you all the stuff my father says to me. You're my friends. You're not just my servants. In James chapter 2, there's another reference in verse 23 calling Abraham, again, the man who began this whole journey in the Bible story anyway about really believing God, okay, that he was called the friend of God. You ever think of God that way? I mean, I understand he's the sovereign Lord, he's eternal, he's amazing, and I, and, and I don't want to bring him down to some level where we flippantly refer to him. I get that, but at the same time, he's more than just the great eternal creator, sovereign, holy one. He's also our friend. He desires to have that relationship with us, us and that's why Jesus did all the things that he did. And so as we enter into this story, I say that just to say Jesus loved these three, and specifically Lazarus, as we look at him. Jesus has a personal relationship with them. Does he have a personal relationship with you? If so, this applies to you as well. Well, I said good news, bad news, and I don't know how you like If somebody says, I have good news and bad news, which one do you want first? I always want the bad news first. Let's get it out of the way, and let's end on something positive, okay? So that's the way we're going to do We're going to start off with some bad news. And the bad news of life is, is that being personal friends with Jesus doesn't guarantee a life free from problems. Amen? Haven't you experienced that? I mean, you could say, yes, Jesus is my friend, absolutely, but you know what? I'm struggling. I got difficulty in my life. Listen, there's a whole bunch of people out there today who get in front of pulpits like this that dress almost as nice as me, and uh, they preach a false doctrine. I mean, they get up, some dress nicer than me, I get it. And, and they preach stuff where they say, hey, God wants you to be prosperous and rich and wealthy and this prosperity theology that is just a lie from hell, it's twisted and, and, and distorted to make you think that if you'll give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never be poor and you'll never be sick and all that kind of, and real Christian people who love Jesus find that they can't get a job and they get sick And then they feel guilty, like, I guess there's something wrong with my relationship with God. Jesus died for your poverty. You ever heard that? Jesus died for your sickness. And in this life, anyway, that's really not true. 
It's just not. And uh, it's important to understand that there's a lot of places in the Bible. I just wanted to give you a couple of references. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter number 13, well, there's a whole series of chapters in Ezekiel that address this subject. But in chapter number 13, it begins kind of talking about these false prophets and false teachers and God's reaction to Ezekiel in referring to these guys who were saying lies to the children of Israel. And in verse number 10, it says this, Because, even because they, talking about the false prophets, have seduced my people saying, peace. And there was no peace. And so these people are crying out saying, all is well, there are no problems. And the reality of life is is that all is not well and there's a lot of problems. And God says, they're lying to you. They're lying to you. It's not always going to be rosy just because you're friends with Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that this kind of a propagation of lies is very characteristic in what the Bible calls the last days before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 specifically deals with the context of these last days. And it goes on in those first three verses. It says this, it says, For when they, talking about these false teachers, shall say peace and safety, Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And so, again, there's people that are going to be in the last days before the coming of the Lord, which I believe is the days we live in, where people will be out saying, everything's great, never has there been a better day, the Lord is blessing, it's all wonderful, and it's not wonderful because in a blink of an eye, before you know it, it's all going to flip and it's going to get very bad very quickly. You know, there's a truth about our lives as Christians Maybe nowhere more clearly descriptive than in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12 where it says, by the way, not one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall have a wonderful, profitable life. No, shall suffer persecution. Uh, living godly in Christ Jesus, wouldn't you say that's walking with Jesus daily? Wouldn't you say that's being close personal friends and interacting with him? having a part of his life, interacting with your life. Listen, bad things happen to good people. They just do. Um, don't, Don't lose heart, though. Good things happen to good people, too. And like I said earlier, good things happen to bad people. And that's what we see in Matthew chapter 5. I just, want to, I just want to make it clear. Matthew chapter 5, and near the end of that chapter, as Jesus is in that Sermon on the Mount, he says in verse 45, to his disciples, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, hey guys, life is life, man. Life is life, and it hits all of us the way it hits all of us. And the sun rising and the rain coming in an agricultural society like Jesus was back then, those are both good things. Sometimes we think the sun is the good thing and the rain is the bad thing. Not if you're a farmer, it's not. And that's exactly what his point is. He says, look, the things that happen in life happen to everybody. And so let's quit worrying so much about the details of the things we're immune from that just because we love Jesus. And let's just figure out how we need to deal with it, okay? So what do you do when bad things happen? Well, if you know the Lord Jesus, odds are you cry out to him. We call that prayer. If bad things happen to you, what's the natural response? Let's pray. Of course, that's the natural response. And basically, that's what we see Martha doing in verse number three. It says, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Help! 
Now, granted, they were in a different city. They sent a messenger to let Jesus know. Again, the, the application for us is they're praying. They're calling out to Jesus. They're saying, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick. He needs help. Lord, please come and do something. And let me just give you the good news. The bad news is, is that, yeah, there's no promise of everything being rosy, but the good news is there's always a reason why stuff happens. There's always a reason why stuff happens. If you look at verse number 4, when Jesus heard that, so he gets, he gets the message. It's like he hears our prayer. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. In other words, there is an intent. There is an express purpose. The sickness is not unto death. By the way, he does die. We'll get to that. But for some specific reason. There is a specific reason why Lazarus is sick and even unto death. There is a reason. Now, let me just tell you. When bad things happen in your life and and things that are very, very difficult, things that we would categorize as a tragedy, we always want to say, Lord, why? What is that thing? I need to know why. And you know what? Sometimes we never know why. Uh, our favorite story in the Bible when we think about people suffering is the book of Job. And in the book of Job, you have 42 chapters. And you know what? Job never finds out why all those terrible things happened to him. Now, it worked out in the end, and he repented of his errors, and, and God gave him back double, and all that was fine. But all through the, the narrative, you never find out why. You may never know why, but you can know that there is a reason. And that can give you comfort. That can give The fact that there is a reason can give you comfort. It says, what is the reason? It's for the glory of God. Okay. What's that mean? <laughs> I mean, face it, you come to church. I don't care if you've been to church a little bit or you've been to church a long time. If somebody stopped you in the hallway and said, hey, what exactly does that mean but for the glory of God? Those, those are church words. What does that exactly mean to me anyway? I don't even know what that means. That's a fair question. Literally, if you take the time to study what the glory of God is, the glory of God is simply the manifestation of God. It's it's the way God expresses himself in a way that becomes visible. Sometimes I like to think of it like God's glory is like God's clothing. When God puts on something, he puts something on display. And so God's very life becomes on display. That's the glory of God. What God's going to do is ultimately Lazarus is going to die, and I'm not spoiling the movie for you, you know, but a lot of you know this. Eventually he'll raise him from the dead. The point is when he raises him, we'll talk about that next week, come back. It's something only God can do. Nobody else is doing that. We're not pulling that off, right? Only God can do something like that. So God is manifest in the midst of this amazing supernatural act. It's for his glory. I'm going to go ahead and let him be sick. Because I'm going to raise him. Now, the people on the ground don't know that, but God knows that. And so that's the deal. It's for his glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, by the way, this is a cool verse. It says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. When God put on flesh and came to earth, his clothing was human flesh the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the very manifest glory of Almighty God. So Lazarus will die. Jesus will raise him. Okay, only God can do that. He gets the glory. Romans, Romans says, in case we're sleeping. 
Romans chapter, we do that on purpose. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And I want you to look close with me at Romans 8, 28. And I realize many of you can probably quote it. It'll pop up on the screen. This is a great promise of Scripture. This is a promise we go to frequently, especially in times of need. And there's a good reason why, okay? And it says this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Let's just break that down for a second because we say, look, the things that happen aren't all good things. When my husband, wife, brother, sister, mother, father, child dies, that's not a good thing. I don't love that. But I can rest in the fact that somehow maybe some good will come of it even though today I'm really suffering. Okay, and we go to that verse for that reason and that's true, that's fine. But I just want you to look really closely where it says we know that all things, all things, no exception, work together for good for a specific group of people. And the specific group of people are them that love God, them who are the called. In other words, Jesus' friends. In other words, those who have a personal relationship with him. In other words, those who do not just trust in religion or baptism or good works, but those who enter into a personal living relationship with a Savior who is alive today, and they are called, notice, what are they called to? According to his purpose. That means that all the things that happen in your life, we go back to what we just studied, all the things that happen in your life, good or bad, the sun and the rain or the difficulty, whatever it might be, has a purpose it has a purpose and it's his purpose because his purpose for your life friends is so much greater than your purpose for your life and so we may walk in darkness today but we hold the hand of the one who is the light and that's enough that's all we need psalm 23 verse 4 a lot of you'll be familiar with this it says yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death I'll fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so if we can just rest in that, even though there's some bad news, yeah, life is tough for all of us. Some worse than others at different times and and stages of our lives. But listen, there is a purpose. There is a plan. There is a will. And it absolutely is going to be played out. And that really is our next point. Our next point deals with God's will Versus our will. Okay, let's continue reading, starting in verse number 6. We'll go down to verse 14. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. That's pretty unusual. We're going to look at that. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If any man walk in the day, stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there's no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them, notice, plainly, Lazarus is dead. So when we look at this story, we see that they sent word to Jesus, hey, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus' immediate reaction is, oh yeah. And he hangs out two more days. 
Because Jesus responds to us, our circumstances, our prayers, according to his will for us, not necessarily according to our will for us. Our will is always going to be, come, take this problem away, heal my friend, remove the difficulty. And sometimes that happens. And sometimes it doesn't. But whatever it happens, you can know that he is responding according to his will for you and maybe not your own. We're going to go back to Romans chapter 8. We read verse 28, and sometimes we read verse 28 without thinking about the verses that lead up to verse 28. So I want us to look in Romans 8, 26 and 27 along with this idea of praying. Because a lot of times we ask God for stuff that is not according to his will. And so in Romans 8.26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints, notice, according to the will of God which then gives us great insight into verse 28 that all the things that work together for good to them that love God, them that are called according to His purpose. So it kind of plays out like this. Bad things happen to us. We naturally, I do it too, we all do it. God, please, if it be thy will, please take this terrible thing away. I'm tired of suffering. And maybe in cases in our lives similar to Lazarus, That's not God's will. And so while we're praying, God, take this tragedy away, at the same exact moment, the Holy Spirit is praying for us, saying, God, no, 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 let it ride. Because they need to learn this specific lesson. By the way, the Holy Spirit is never going to pray outside the will of God. He is God. That's who he is. So as he prays, so it shall be. That is better for us in the long run. Now, in the short term, maybe we don't think so. In the long term, it's better for us. So frequently, we struggle knowing exactly what God's will for us really is, especially during times of great tragedy and loss. And so Jesus has to teach us. And that's what we see going into this next section of verses that we just read, four specific lessons that I think Jesus wants us to learn. Anytime you're going through difficulty, if you can land on these four lessons, that's really going to help you. And the first lesson is, is that God is omniscient. God is omniscient. That's a big word that just simply means he knows everything. He's all-knowing. He says in verse number four, as soon as word comes to him, he says in verse number four, the sickness isn't unto death. Well, how could he possibly know that? unless he knows everything that happens simultaneously all over the world. He does. He's all-knowing. He understands everything. He understands the future, which again is kind of unusual because eventually Lazarus actually does die, but then he's risen again, and so the ultimate end of him, you know, is, is not that he stays in the grave, and again, we'll get to that next week, but the point is he understands it all, and he understands it all right now. And we're praying that something doesn't happen. And he says, no, it has to happen. He's all-knowing. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 gives us a, a great verse where it talks about the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward them. God's eyes are just scanning the planet all the time to see what can I do and who's looking for me and who's calling out to me. 
You're never in secret and hiding and God doesn't know where you are. He knows everything. He already knows what's happening now. He knows before you tell him, before you bother to pray. He knows how it's all going to play out. That's a comfort. That should be a comfort to us. The second lesson is that God is wisdom. And the Bible says that Christ literally, as we saw, he is the glory of God. Christ also is the wisdom of God. In verse number 6, it talks about how he abode two days still after he heard that he was sick. In other words, they pray to Jesus and they say, Lord, please help, please come, please hurry. Lazarus is very sick. And Jesus' answer was basically no answer. Or in other words, the answer was wait. Now, you know, I don't know about you all. You know, we live in... North America, and everything's instant and in a hurry. We hate to wait. We do not like waiting for anything. I hate waiting in traffic. I hate waiting at airports. I hate waiting in restaurants. I hate waiting for stuff. We hate waiting, and we pray, and we beg God, and we're as sincere and fervent as we know how to be, and we throw out this prayer, and if God would say no we'd probably be okay with it because we got an answer. But when it seems like there's no answer, those are the hard ones, aren't they? Those are the ones God could answer yes, no, or wait, and wait is the one that gets us. That's the one that's hard. But the fact of the matter is, God is at work, and he's working in such a way to bring about a better result. That's a demonstration of his wisdom. He's willing for us to go through some stuff in order to get a better result. That requires wisdom. Listen, some things are just more important than personal suffering. If you're going through it, it doesn't seem like it at the moment. I understand, but please understand, according to the scriptures and the truth and the reality that God has given us, some things are just more important than personal suffering. And, and the reason I can say that is because if nothing was more important than just relieving personal suffering, suffering, immediately Jesus would have been right there. He'd have been right there to relieve the suffering. Of course he would have been right there. But he waited on purpose, and we'll see a little deeper why as we go on. But that's, that's wisdom. And to rest in the fact that God knows everything and that he's wise and he's working out a better solution, that'll help you when you're going through the difficulty. The third thing we need to learn is that not only is God wisdom and omniscient, but he's love. God's love. God is good. That's what the scripture says. God is love. And just like we saw that some things are more important than personal suffering, it's interesting because we look at the next few verses, we see that ministry is more important than personal safety. (laughs) Right? Verses 7 and 8. Afterward, he said to his disciples, let's go into Judea again. And his disciples said, Judea? They're on the east side of the River Jordan where John was baptizing at this point when Jesus gets the word. And Bethany, by the way, is kind of like a suburb of Jerusalem. It's right there next to Jerusalem, only a couple miles from Jerusalem. Bethany to Jerusalem is about the distance from here to Tuscora Park. That's just really close. So they're going back into Judea, and the disciples are like, Lord, don't you remember the last time you were in Judea? They tried to throw stones. They tried to kill you. But ministry is more important than personal 
threats, threatening, danger. And Jesus says, we got to go. And so you can argue about early or late, but we got to go. Why is that? Because God's love. Because God's good. And that's what he does. And so with no thought at all for his personal safety, with no worry about how it's going to affect him directly, he says, we got to go. We got to see Mary and Martha. We got to work to do. And then he goes into this thing about walking in the day and walking in the night, okay, in verses 9 and 10. And the whole idea is Jesus is the light of the world. We've seen that in John's gospel. And if we walk in the day, literally, that's just walking with Jesus. You walk in the day. He is the light of the world. And so that's walking with him. That's having a personal relationship with him. And walking in the night is walking without the light of Jesus Christ, a part of your daily life to enlighten your path every step that you make. And so the whole idea of walking with Jesus in this personal relationship, at times it can have consequence. At times it might even be a little bit dangerous, but you know what? You're not going to fall. You won't stumble because you walk in the light. Because God is good and you are doing good and you are moving forward with the right things for the right reason. And the last lesson he has for us is that God is omnipotent. He's omniscient, which meant all-knowing. Omnipotent means all-powerful. He's all-powerful. Basically, he says, I have power over life and death. He says, Lazarus is sleeping. I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Now, they didn't get the sleep part. They thought he meant sleep, and he meant no, dead, dead, gone. What Jesus said Lazarus has died. I, he, didn't say, he didn't say, let's go wake him up. He said, I go, because he's the only one that can do it. I go that I may awake him, raise him from the dead. He is dead, and I am going to raise him. I am all-powerful. I can do that. These lessons, by the way, are not given to Mary and Martha. They have not returned to Bethany yet. These lessons are for his disciples. These lessons are for those men who have a personal, like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, have a personal daily relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is teaching them some things. He wants them to understand the things that are more important. So he tells them plainly that Lazarus is dead. And in the scriptures, the Bible uses the word sleep frequently for the death of a Christian. Because in our lives, when physical life ends, our life is not over. Your body sleeps, but your life continues. It just continues somewhere else. And so that's why sleep is used frequently for the life of a believer in the Scriptures. And so especially in times of great tragedy and loss, if we'll just learn to apply these lessons in our lives and think about whether it's you or a friend that you know that's going through them, that God knows everything, that his wisdom exceeds our own, that he is good and loving and all-powerful and able to do whatever it is he wants to do, then what you will do is you will draw strength at a level that otherwise you could not draw. It is supernatural and it will allow you to navigate the storm the right way without making bad decisions without just crumbling to dust you know what you'll also do you'll learn to walk with Jesus more closely that's what you'll do because you'll understand his mind the last thing that we're going to see 
is the comparison between faith and sight. And we'll read the last several verses, starting in verse 15. So he said plainly, Lazarus is dead in verse 14. He goes on in verse 15. And, and this is a crazy statement. He says, and I'm glad. What? I'm glad for your sakes, disciples, that I was not there. Why? Notice this, because this is the key to all this story. To the intent you may believe. We're going to talk about that. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. And when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. That's what I said. That's a couple of miles. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And so we see this issue. There's this constant struggle that goes on within us, whether or not we're going to focus on the things that are physical and visible, or whether we're going to focus on the things that are invisible physically, but they're spiritual. And that's really what's going on in the rest of the story. Let me remind you of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the last two verses in that chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 says this. Notice. For our light affliction. Uh, the Apostle Paul who wrote that understood some pretty heavy affliction, by the way. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, it's just, it's, just a, it's just a vapor in comparison to eternity. Our light affliction, sickness and death, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more an eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And the only way you could ever possibly see invisible things is through the eyes of faith. That's the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You enter into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and you get down to verse number 7 which says we walk by faith and not by sight. The definition of faith, whatever faith is, it's the opposite of sight. If you can see it, you don't need faith because you have sight. And how we live our Christian lives far too frequently is we want to see it play out. You know, I'm from Missouri, the show me state. Seeing is believing, you know, whatever. I'm not really from Missouri, but that's what they say. And, and people say seeing is believing. No, it's not. It absolutely is not. The one thing that seeing is not, seeing is a lot of things, it's not believing. Believing is when you don't have sight. The very definition of faith in Hebrews 11, verse number 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So you live your life and you see things happen and you see circumstances line up or don't line up and you respond based on what you see. You may make wise choices based on what you see, but guarantee you, friends, whatever it is you're doing, you are not doing that by faith because faith is the opposite of sight, and he says in 2 Corinthians that we've got to look at the things that are unseen. We've got to live by faith 
and not by sight. And that brings us back to verse 15. I'm glad that I wasn't there. Why? To the intent that you might believe. You've got to start seeing things beyond the surface of the physical. You've got to look into the mind and the heart of God and to be able to get this understanding. I am glad that I wasn't there. Because the more important thing than personal suffering, look, I got the death and life thing taken care of. I got it. The more important thing is whether you believe. Because if you live your whole physical life, 50, 60, 70, 100 years on this planet, and you never figure out the believing in Jesus part, the eternity is terrible. It's awful. It's the worst you could ever imagine. Because lost people live forever also, just separated from God in a real place that's described as a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. We call it hell. Belief is way more important than sickness and life and death. Get the belief thing taken care of, and the rest of it is just, they're just circumstances. They're just things that happen. This is interesting, because if you look really close at this narrative, I'd say that it's likely that by the time, it's probably, I'm guessing, about a two-day journey from Bethany to the east side of Jordan where Jesus was. And by the time Jesus got word that Lazarus is sick, he probably was already dead. Now the Bible doesn't specifically say that. Why do you say that, Jeff? Because it says once he got word, he said that let's just hang out here for a couple of days. And then they travel back. So he hung out for a couple of days, and then they traveled back. And when they got there, he had already been in the grave four days. So by the time Jesus, who is all-knowing, okay, by the time he got word, it was already too late. From a physical standpoint, it was already too late, okay? And so... He has a purpose, again, that's greater. He has a will. And God's ultimate purpose for us is to believe him, regardless of the circumstances. That's what's most important. Sorry. In every circumstance of life, we just need to believe him. Why is that? Well, because at the end of the day, that's all you need to know, isn't it? I mean, if you know those four lessons we just learned, if you realize who he is, if you realize you don't know exactly how it's going to play out and where you're going or what's going to happen, but you have a firm grasp on his hand and you're walking together with him, isn't that really all that matters? He knows where he's going. Just go together with him. Don't make up your own plan. Don't make up your own path. Each problem has its own specific solution, but you need to trust Jesus and let him work out the details. And you know what? When he does, it'll work out just fine. It will absolutely work out great. Uh, you know, if we took the time and, and studied a little bit about what it means to believe, and um, boy, that word is all over the scriptures, but I just want to draw your attention to the very first time that the word believe is ever used in all your Bible. And you wouldn't be surprised to find out that it's associated with a guy by the name of Abraham, okay? And it shows up in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, and it says, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, the story that's going on at this time in Abraham's life is Abraham is frustrated because they don't have any children. And he's got a servant in his house, and the guy who's going to be the heir of all of his wealth is going to be this guy who's his servant because he doesn't have any children and he wants some children. And God appears to him and he says, look, Abraham, 
go outside on a starry night and count the stars. And however many stars you can see with your eyes, that's how many children you're going to have. <laughs> now just think about it for a minute. Man, that's a crazy statement. God said that to Abraham, and, and, and Abraham said, I believe it, Lord. I believe it. And God said, way to go. That's all I wanted. I want you to believe me. And he counted it to him for righteousness. So check out the idea with that. It's pretty cool. Because the problem that Abraham had, it really isn't all that different than the problem that Mary and Martha had, is it? Because Abraham had a situation where he desired for there to be life and there was no life. He's just on the other end of the spectrum. He's on the front end. Mary and Martha are at the back end. But in both cases, they wanted life and they were not able to produce it themselves. There was nothing that they could do. Thomas shows up and Thomas has a misunderstanding. And so Thomas turns to the disciples after he says, look, let's go. He says, look, let's go and we may die with him also. You know, the idea that's going on in Thomas's mind very clearly is, okay, look, Lazarus is dead. He just told us. And there's no coming back from that, right? No coming back from that. So if we're going to go to him and we're going to go to Judea where they killed us last time we were there anyway, I guess Jesus is saying, let's go to Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. Let's go to Lazarus. Let's us die too. That's what Thomas was thinking. And so Thomas was bold. Thomas is, is brave. Thomas says, all right, guys, this is it. We're going to go die with Jesus. Let's go do it. Now, before we make fun of Thomas, that's quite a statement, right? That's quite a statement. But I think there's going to be even a greater challenge for us to get. If you took the time, and we're not going to do that, and you looked in 2 Samuel chapter 12, that's that story after David sins with Bathsheba and he has a child and ultimately the child dies and David is weeping for his child while he's sick and then once the child dies, he gets up and washes his face and he doesn't weep anymore and they said, why is that? And David basically says, he says, look, when he was alive, there was a chance, but now that he's dead, there's no chance. I can go to him, but he can't come back to me. In other words, death is a one-way path. And so I'll die one day like he died, but he ain't coming back to life, okay? That's what Thomas is thinking. He's thinking that exact same thing in his life. And so he's got this cool idea, man. Hey, I'm ready to die for Jesus. And, and I don't know, maybe in your life at times you've come across stuff and you've, you've said that or you've thought that. And man, I hope it doesn't happen. But if something happened and somebody put the gun to me and said, deny Christ or I'll kill you. And, and you know, you think of stuff like that occasionally. I do anyway. And would you do it? I don't know. I don't know if you would. But maybe in your mind you're thinking, I think I'd do it. I think if I had to, I won't want to, but if I had to, I'm not denying the Lord. I'm going to stick it out, man. I'm ready to die for him. And, and here's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. Okay, that's cool. That is, that is cool. That may be a step ahead of one or two others. But, but what if we don't just say we're willing to die for him? What if we fearlessly believe that Jesus can change things here and now? What if Thomas would have not just said, okay, well, it's over, guys. Let's just do it. I mean, we're in this far. But if he said, hey, man, let's ride with Jesus because he might raise the boy. Who knows? Let's, let's believe that he will do that. And that's Jesus' whole focus in this story. That's the life we need to, we need to fearlessly forge ahead, believing that God will do miraculous things. And if he doesn't, 
and it turns out that we end up giving our lives trying, okay, then default to the if I die, I die, you know? And so you go to the story in Daniel chapter 3 with the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the king comes out with the image, and everybody's supposed to bow down to the image, and the boys are like, we're not bowing down to your idol. I'm sorry. We serve the one true God. And they said, your punishment, you're going in the fiery furnace. And, and the boys, they were bold. They're like, we are not backing down. And they say in Daniel chapter 3, our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. And they're standing. We are going to go forth fearlessly. But if for some reason he chooses not to deliver us from this fiery furnace, know this, I'm not bowing down to your idol. I'm not doing it. That's the life Jesus wants us to have. You remember the book of Esther? And Esther is the queen. And, and there's an organized genocide set up by this evil guy named Haman who's going to destroy all the Jews. And Esther's a Jewish princess, and she's going to go into the king and plead for her people that he wouldn't destroy her people. But you're, the, the rules in those days in Persia, you were not allowed to enter into the king's quarters unless he called for you. He held out his scepter, and he asked you to come. And if you just barge in, the punishment could be death. And her uncle Mordecai, who had raised her, said, look, who knows if God hasn't put you in this position for such a time as this, if God doesn't use you, if you cower away from this duty that God has for you, God will raise somebody else up because God is going to do what God is going to do. But this might be your time. This might be your chance. And Esther says, okay, you fast and pray, and I'm going to go. And if he calls me in, that's great. And if he decides to kill me, if I, he, she says, if I perish, I perish. Guys, what if we did ministry like that? What if we did ministry believing in the one truly who knows it all and has all power and life and death are not nearly as important as it is to just be good and to go for it and to make a difference in this world? And we put it on the line and we go for it with the gospel and we take it to places around this world where people don't have it and where it might even be dangerous. And what if we say we're going to put our lives on the line if that's what's necessary and God will do great things? I believe that he'll do great things. And if he doesn't do great things and he just chooses to let my life expire, so be it. Then I'll default to the position. Let's go die with him. At least I died trying to do something that made a difference. Amen? Live your life for something bigger than yourself. If we had that mindset, forge ahead, go for it, fearless. Just think what God would do. Do you think he's able to take care of you? By the way, let's just pretend like we could look into the mind of God as he's reviewing the billions of prayers he gets every day. And people who live really comfortable like us pray for stuff like, you know, my dog hurt his paw. And, you know, he's, he's suffering, Lord. And I don't mean to make light of that. Well, kind of do. <laughs> or, you know, Lord, you know, I only have four gallons of milk in my fridge, and, you know, I probably need five. Um, but there's other people really putting it on the line, man, and saying, Lord, if, if you don't blind the eyes of these border guards that we're smuggling Bibles into this country, they're going to kill us. But these people need the Word of God. And we're going to go for it. Now, God isn't like us, and he doesn't react like we react, but I would think I'm listening to that guy and covering his back quicker than I'm worried about the guy with the dog or the milk. 
I think sometimes we just don't put it out there. We just don't believe God enough, and that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to believe him. So the portion of our story today, and the story will continue, but we're ending with Martha, verses 21 and 22. And, and Martha, listen, has an amazing transformation. You know, Jesus approaches. She's, you know, he can, she can see him coming off in the distance, and, and she runs out to, see, to meet him, okay? And, and she has this thing where she runs out, and she's like, Lord, her reaction is just... It's natural, it's normal, it's what all our reaction would be. Lord, if you'd have just come sooner, he wouldn't have had to die. So her first reaction is a natural one, it's to blame God. She's not rude. She's just saying, Lord, why wouldn't you come sooner? If you'd have come sooner, this wouldn't have had to happen. And that's the way we feel. That's an, by the way, if you feel that way at any time, that is very natural that you feel that way. It's not unnatural. But we are not to live our lives in the natural. We can live our lives in the supernatural. And that's what he wants. Because she catches herself. And she kind of adjusts it in verse 22. And I love this because her supernatural response is not to blame anymore, but it's to believe God. And she says, I I know God will do whatever you ask him. Lord, why hadn't you come? Wait a minute. You're here. You you can do whatever you want. And she begins to get the spark of faith. And it's amazing. It's amazing transformation. And you know what, friends? I think some of us need that transformation. You may or may not be going through a real valley in the shadow of death right now. Maybe you are. I don't know. Maybe you know somebody who is. Maybe your life is okay. But I promise you, it's not always going to be okay. And your tendency may be, maybe you heard your own life story in the midst of this story. And your tendency is just to blame God if everything isn't rosy and, and, you know, balloons and rainbows. And you just need to believe him, man. You just need to believe him even in the midst of things that aren't always all that great. Because that's what he wants you to do. He wants you to move from the natural to the supernatural. And maybe you're here today and you've just always been a nice person who tried to do your best and you're somewhat or maybe very religious and and you believe in a God. But this whole idea of a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe that's new to you. Maybe you've never really understood the fact that Jesus, yeah, he died for the sins of the whole world. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And that death literally is eternal death. It's separation from God and hell. And that he died, while we were yet sinners, he showed us how much he loved us. He died for our sins. But because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, you've got to understand, does not mean that the whole world automatically goes to heaven, right? You've got to have something more. And Jesus Christ says that you repent of your sins. You call on me. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You believe that Jesus is Lord. You confess that, that, he, that God has risen from him from the dead. You believe that. You make it your own. You invite him to come into your heart, into your life, to forgive you, not the world's sins, my sins. Forgive me my sins. Give me the free gift of eternal life. Begin my personal daily relationship with a man who is alive at the right hand of God the Father. And maybe today for the first time the light bulb came on and you said, I get it. I get it. I need to do that.
Let's pray together. I want to give you that chance. And if you would just bow your head.